Our scripture today comes from Paul's letter to the Ephesians, chapter 4, verses 29. Put away your former way of life, old self, corrupt, polluted by its lusts, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to clothe yourself with the new self, created according to the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So then, putting away falsehood, let, us, let all of us speak the truth to our neighbors, for we are members of one another. Be angry, but do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, and do not make room for the devil. Thieves must give up stealing, rather, than, rather let them labor and work honestly with their hands, so as to have something something to share with the needy. Let no evil talk come out of your mouths, but only what is useful for building up as there is need, so that your words may give grace to those who hear. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks Thanks be to God. Some years... Some years ago, Wallace Hamilton wrote an interesting book called Ride the Wild Horses, and uh, he addressed some of the strongest desires and passions and emotions of life, and early on in the book, he noted that in most religious circles, uh, these strong impulses were looked on kind of questionably, and he even noted that entire religious systems have been built around the suppression of them. But Hamilton went on and said this was not Jesus' approach to these impulses and feelings. And, uh, he saw them as part of our God-given equipment. He said they were like wild horses that could be harnessed, or they were like um, torrents of a waterfall that could be converted. So here we have Paul in the fourth chapter of Ephesians. He's talking about our life in the world. Your life, my life as Christians. He's talking about our call to be apostles of light and love. In the middle of this discussion, he says something like this. I want you to hear it in Eugene Peterson's translation. He says, go ahead. Do you well to be angry? Uh, Be angry, uh, but do not sin. Uh, Do not carry your anger so long that it just becomes fuel for um, retaliation and revenge. That's right. Hold on to your anger too long, and those that receive your anger probably were not the ones who made you angry in the first place. Hold on to your anger long enough, and uh, you're going to lose all possibilities to do something constructive with it. You know, anger putrefies pretty quickly, doesn't it? Uh, It becomes bitterness and resentment. It becomes those toxic acids that corrode the body and the soul. But Paul says, it would do you well. Go ahead and be angry. Now, I imagine there are a number of Christian people who have never thought of anger being a companion piece of our discipleship. But think about it for just a moment. At its base level, anger is a pretty good diagnostic tool. It's that sixth sense that there is some evil or there is some stupidity or incompetence lurking about. It's that sense that we can sniff out with that there's something wrong in the neighborhood. Now, now do do you see what Paul is doing here? It's kind of like what Ann was talking about in the children's time. He's separating the emotion 
from the response to it. Now, to be sure, I mean, anger can be a wild horse. Um, it can come with a rush that can leave us dizzy and discombobulated. But you and I, we get to choose what we're going to do with the surge. And the first thing we can do is choose to say, own it. This is mine. I'm the one who is angry. The, the other thing, I think this maybe the, one of the most important things we can say today is ask some questions. You, you see, we get to... Um, we get to be interpreters of our feelings. And the more curious you are about your anger, the better. Ask some questions. Well, is it real or is it imagined? Is it exaggerated? Does this really just belong into the realm of smaller grievances? Somebody cut you out of a parking place that you were aiming at when you went downtown, and there you were, you were back in your crib again screaming, somebody took my rattle. Do you know how the old proverb goes? You can tell the size of a person by the size of what makes them angry. So word went out, I think uh, Andrew helped get the word out this week that there was going to be this sermon on anger. And uh, a, a friend of mine in the church uh, sent back an article and it, there was this really good quote in there. Her name is Paula Sinestra. She's a therapist down in Atlanta. And, and she said that if you and I can just slow down a little bit and sift through our anger and ask some questions, then we go beyond the knee-jerk reaction, and we are then using the like pro-frontal part of our cortex of our brain, which moves to reasoning and planning. Do you remember what your mother used to say to you when you got angry? I, I can remember that. Um, I would be throwing one of my little temper tantrums, and my mother would look at me, and she'd say, are you finished yet? And I'd say, well, not quite. And she'd say, well, there's a nice little couch over there. Why don't you just go and sit there and count to 10? She said, no, maybe you ought to count to 20. Now, that's not bad advice. When anger comes, pause, sift through it, ask some questions. But Paul says, it's part of our God-given equipment. Go ahead, go ahead. It's well to be angry at times. And we ought, if anybody ought to accept that you and I can be both good and angry, it's us as Christian believers because we have this whole biblical narrative. And in that narrative, there's a lot of examples about people getting disappointed with and angry at God. Just read the Psalms and read Job. But then there's a lot of examples of God having lovers quarrels with us. Look at his ongoing relationship with Moses. How about Jonah? God had to send Jonah to his room in the belly of a well. How about the disciples? How many times did we find Jesus had to take a, just call time out and step aside with them and talk to them like they were truant schoolboys? But I want you to catch what I think Paul's trying to do here in the fourth chapter of Ephesians. He is trying to set anger into the larger context of our life in the world. He is talking about our attempt and our conviction that you and I are called to love the world as God loves the world. Now, when you and I get caught up in that, we're going to be caught up in a very passionate life. There are things that you're going to see things going on around you that will unsettle you, 
that would just rattle the very rivets of your inner being. To become a friend of God, that's a blessing. It's also a burden. You'll wake up at 3 o'clock in the morning just pulled apart by the ethical goings-on or non-goings-on in the world around you. I want you to hear what Paul is doing here in the fourth chapter. He's describing us as a Eucharistic community. That's what we're having here today. We're going to celebrate the Eucharist. And we are to have ourselves broken open. You get the picture? Just like the bread today will be broken open, to have ourselves be broken up for the healing of the world. In other words, to roll up our sleeves with the great hope that God is putting things back together again. Now that's what it means to be church. And to be that kind of church, that's going to push you sometimes to the edge of your passion. You're going to be angry. Sometimes in the church, anger is not the lack of love. It's love's clearest expression. Why, why do you think Jesus went into the temple that day and knocked over all the tables? You think he was in a bad mood, just having a bad day? No, no. It had to do with his compassionate concern with the people he knew would be coming to the temple. He had been one of those. Early in his life, his with his parents, they made this pilgrimage, a five- or six-day walk. They probably saved up every little bit of income that they had for several years so they could take the trip. What did they bring with them? They brought a dove, because that would be the only sacrifice that they could afford. And then this is what would happen when they got to the temple. The religious hucksters would look at them and say, Oh, oh no, that, that, that dove is not without blemish. And the only one that you can offer is one that will be offered to you at our tables. They were shysters. They were religious hucksters. And Jesus had seen enough of it. And it becomes like a um, barroom brawl scene in Dodge City. He's knocking over the tables, not because he's petulant, not because he's pouting, but because it's not the absence of love, but it's the recoil of love. It's in action. Sometimes, tranquility and serenity of mind is not a Christian virtue. Sometimes it's a sin. Do you know what sin we call that? We call that sloth. In my younger years, I used to think sloth was lying around in the bathwater too long. But the more I read Scripture, it's no, a slothful person can be an active person. It's a busy person. It's just they're going through the motions. It's like a man with a bad head cold. Um, You can't see or taste or smell much. Your eyes are so glazed over. People come and go, but you don't really notice them. You're just letting things run their course. Sloth is paralyzing indifference. Hear the call of Jesus through the New Testament. And you don't hear him calling us to be sleepy, permanent planets. He calls us to be superb meteors, every inch aglow and alive. People that at times can righteously get angry. When was the last time you got angry? Oh, I don't mean when somebody cut you off on 240. When was the last time you had a God-sized, spirit-infused anger that 
got beyond a crybaby self at the center of the universe. Now, how do we know that our anger is God-infused? I'm pretty sure of this. It's not going to be narrow. It's going to have some breadth to it. It was early on during the pandemic, and I had this conversation with a member of uh, our church, and she was really upset. This was before the um, terrible death of George Floyd. It was early on. She was paying attention to the statistics, and what did statistics say? The persons who were most likely to die were the people that were uh, in service-related jobs, jobs that were still being deemed essential. And what demographic of the population did they come from? Mainly the people that were black and people that were brown. And she was saying to herself, how come this is always the way it is? Whether it be hurricane, whether it be recession, whether it be pandemic, the people who suffer the most are those who have the least. And this is what really made her mad. She just said, we just keep tolerating the same old script. Nobody seems to want to do anything about it. She was riled up. That's not a little narrow anger. That's, that has some breadth to it. But even, you know, when there's moral outrage, we have to be careful. Because sometimes we just keep it kind of narrow. It's about me and mine and my little clan or my little group. And that's why in Scripture we have phrases like social justice. It's not just me and mine. It's about all of us. Martin Niemöller, German pastor, theologian, he wrote this confessional passage that I've hung on to. It's, it was very honest. He was a German Protestant pastor during World War II. He said, I was there when they came, the Nazis came and got the communists, but I expressed no outrage because, frankly, I was not a communist. And I was there when they came and got the Jews, but I offered no protest because I was not a Jew. And I said nothing when they came and got the trade unionists because I was not a unionist. And my feathers were not ruffled when they came and got the Catholics because I was not a Catholic. And then they came and got me, and there really wasn't anybody left to say much of anything. Spirit-infused anger. It's not going to be narrow. It's, it's going to have some breadth to it. And let me also say this. God-infused anger doesn't just stay angry. It doesn't stop there. Remember what we said earlier? The hope of this kind of unruly wild horse is that it can be harnessed. Now, when I get angry, wow, there is a surge, and I feel powerful. I feel unified. But, you know, there is not a lot of redemptive power in stomping the feet and making a lot of noise. What do they say? All the steam goes off in the whistle. And when we had our service out here, it was called Prayer in Action 
a couple of the black ministers made it very clear, yes, it's good that we are praying and it's good that we are protesting, but if this is ever going to change anything, it's got to be converted into action. Oh, but you say, Jesus, uh, there in the temple, wasn't there making a lot of noise and maybe even the stomping of the feet? But see, it didn't stop there. If you go on and you read right after that, it says, Jesus looked at the crowd. And who did he see? He see the forgotten ones. He saw the lepers. And what did he do? He went and he was with them. He touched them. His anger harnessed into um, healing and redemptive action. When we lived in the Kernersville area, one of the local newspapers always had this, they called it a little personality Sunday profile. It, it was usually nicely written. It was some interest story about somebody in the community. And on this particular uh, week, it was written about a man who was a civic leader and a banker, but it wasn't about his banking. It wasn't about his civic leading. It was about he had this just unique reputation in town of always being somebody who noticed the folks that were often unnoticed. I think his name was Charles. And they interviewed some of the people that worked with him at the bank, and they said, you know, when you can't find Charles, and you know he's not in a meeting, you can't find him in his desk, what you're going to look for is somebody's got a broom or somebody's got a mop. You're going to look for one of the menders and the sweepers and the cleaners and the fixers, because those were the people that he refused to see as stage props. You know, He would always stop and engage, and they got to know him, and he got to know them. And he also had his habit, two or three days a week, he always brought his lunch and a, and a brown paper, paper sack, and he would go down to the local bus station, and he would look for somebody, it seemed like they were having a bad day on the bad side of things, and he'd say, I've got some extra lunch, would you like to eat with me? So the writer of the article pushed on a little bit. He said, I, I want to know, where in the world does this come from? I mean, what... What's the background of your lifestyle? Apparently Charles paused for a minute and he said, well, I think I have an answer. See, I grew up in a little town, upper New York State, and the first job I had was at our historic church that had a very historic cemetery, and they were proud of that, and they should have been. It was a beautiful historic cemetery, and I got to be the one who was going to take care of it and edge it and mow it and I've been doing that for a few weeks, and this is what I noticed. Over the wall of the cemetery, there were these crude little markers in the ground. They didn't even have any names. They didn't have any dates. Um, you could barely see them because the grass and the moss and everything had grown over them. But I, I picked up the lawnmower and went over the wall and said, these were real people. And so I, I mowed and I cleaned it up and I edged it. Said about two weeks later, a leader, the vestry leader of the church, came and said, um, I see that you went over the wall and you, you cleaned up and mowed around. He said, no, don't ever do that again. Don't you know we call that pauper's field? What? We call that the pauper's field. Uh, these were people, they, they were nobodies. We don't know who they were. Some of them were ex-prisoners. Your work is here in these walls. And he said, something about that just riled me up. 
until the day that um, I stopped having that job. Every time I mowed, I picked up the mower and I went over the wall. So you say, why do I live the way I do? He said, I guess it started there. I, ever since then, I've been determined to go over the wall, not just for the dead, but for the living. Now, do you see what happened? He got mad. He got angry about something. But it didn't stay there. He, he harnessed it. He put it to use, and it became a lifetime of redemptive power. Paul is writing to real people just like us who are trying to figure out how to be Christians day in and day out in the world, how to be apostles of light and life. And he says, go ahead. It would do you well to be angry. Be angry. May the people and friends of Central figure out in our very lives how we can be both good and angry. In the name of the Father, and Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.